Our scripture lesson today is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. If you need a Bible and like to follow along, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. Genesis 2, 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was his, its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. All right, first things first. Kids, you are dismissed to worship kids' style. And grown-ups, uh, we are continuing our sermon series, our brief sermon series on Genesis 1 and 2. And if you've been with us, you might notice that we are going out of order and skip the first part of Genesis 2. And we will preach on that next week. But just to cover certain things in the rhythm of the life of the church, we are preaching this text first. But with that said, let's pray as we turn to God's word. God and Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we study your word together, that you might be speaking to us, and that all of us sinners might be attentive to what you say, and that you would be with me a sinner as I seek to preach it. Amen. So this passage in Genesis, like really all the ones we've covered so far, are super famous. You've almost certainly heard it a bunch of times before. And most likely, you've heard this one at weddings. The bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The two become one flesh. All of that sounds really romantic, at least during a wedding ceremony. But that setting of the wedding ceremony for how we've usually heard this really has two problems. First, the, the first problem is that while this text is about marriage... Um, a lot of its lessons, I think, get missed among the flowers and the veils and the pretty clothes and stuff of a wedding ceremony. So the first challenge is to hear this in a way that applies not just to that kind of like bubbly special day, but applies to all the hard realities of marriage. And then the second challenge is that this text is not only about marriage. It also has deeper truths that speak to all of us, whether married or unmarried, and in the way we associate this with weddings, we can miss that as well. And so what we're going to do this morning is two things. First, we're going to talk about marriage a little bit. This is the formation of the original married couple. And then 
we're going to talk a little bit about the broader calling of human community, which is the deeper thing that this text is about. First, though, marriage. Um, this passage is used in Scripture as the, like, the prototype for marriage. Sin is not yet in the picture, and what we see here in Adam and Eve being joined together is supposed to tell us at least three things about how God designed marriage to work. And the first thing is that marriage is about complementarity. Complementarity, which is a big word, but it just means to complement each other, all right? Marriage is about two people being joined in a way that they complement each other so that there's something more than the sum of their parts. So start at the beginning. In verse 18, um, God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now we're going to come back to that word helper in just a minute because some people have questions about it. So file that one away. But then what God says is, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And what happens in the next few verses is that he brings all the animals to Adam first and sort of tests each of them as a suitable companion and concludes that they are not good companions. Now, of course, God knows that, the, that these animals are not going to be good companions. I think some people read this as God's like, oh, you mean like leopards aren't going to work for this? But back in Genesis 1, we're already told he's planning to create male and female. But he's doing this to demonstrate to Adam and to us two things, really. One is our need for human connection in a general way. I mean, like, dogs are great. They're man's best friend, you know. I mean, cats are also pets that some people keep. But, um, <laughs> but like, animals are good, but they're not, you know, it's meant to demonstrate first our need for human connection. But more than that, it's also meant to demonstrate that Adam in his maleness is incomplete. God is not just saying that Adam as a person feels lonely. He's saying it's not good for man to be alone, which is meant to prepare for the creation of woman. That um, this creature that is in some ways different from him is needed for God's intention for humanity and us to bear his image for that to be completed. So then here's what happens. Starting in verse 20, it says that for Adam no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So up front, that is a weird part of this story, right? <laughs> and, um, and I know that people often ask about that, the rib part. Um, I've been asked before, like, well, is that, like, symbolic? Or is that, like, literally, you know, is this just representing this reality that they're made from the same flesh? Or did God, you know, like, out a rib and, you know, and make a woman out of it? And the answer to that is, I really don't know. <laughs> um, but that doesn't really matter to what the story is trying to teach us, which is two things. The first thing it's trying to teach is that Adam and Eve share um, their humanity, right? By, being, by making Eve out of Adam, what God is first communicating is that this is not some other creature, right? That you are a human being and she is a human being. You share in your, your humanity, which is important to recognize that, I mean— we tend sometimes to only talk in categories of male and female, but the category of human is more foundational for all of us, and it's something that we all share. And then also, this is meant to be an image of intimacy, which we'll come back in a minute. 
But overall, this creation of Eve is really meant to communicate something to us. And to get that, we need to go back to that idea about helper, right? Like we said a minute ago, we're going to come back to that idea that God says he needs a helper. So one of the basic issues that many people have when they read Genesis 2 is that they hear that language of helper, and they take that in a demeaning way towards women, as if Adam is sort of like the main deal, and Eve is just there to be like the sideshow that props him up. So that is not what the word helper means. And the easiest way to understand that is by realizing that that word is often used to describe God. So for example, in Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. David is not saying that, like, I'm the big deal here, and God is just sort of here to prop me up, right? That is not what he's communicating. And so that language of helper does not mean um, that Eve is somehow inferior to Adam, but rather what this is communicating is that Eve is Adam's helper in the sense that God's mission requires more abilities than just Adam has on his own to do, that he needs this companion, this complement to him, to come alongside him and help him realize this mission. And so that's what God is saying in the creation of Eve. So again, right, God's creating um, a woman here to be with Adam is not about making a lesser partner or something. Rather, it's saying here are two human beings that are equally human, but that are different. And in those differences, they're supposed to complement and complete each other. There's two different genders, male and female, and there's these different kind of like ways that they will enmesh in marriage, and that that is a good thing that we should appreciate and celebrate. So what does that teach us then in particular? First, it is meant to teach us some things about gender, and this is where we have to be careful, because on the one hand, we should recognize that there are differences between men and women. Scripture views maleness and femaleness as something that God creates. But it's important right up front to say that that does not necessarily correspond to the cultural stereotypes that people have about men and women. Too often, when people try to define what does it mean to be male and what does it mean to be female, they're like, well, men are like, you know, they like drive around in their pickup trucks while they're like shooting their guns out the window and, you know, watching ultimate fighting. And women are like doing needlepoint and, you know, wearing high heels and screaming at spiders. And none of that has anything to do with the way scripture pictures gender differences as working, all right? It's very important that while we affirm that scripture does say that men and women are different, that that does not mean that it affirms kind of our culture's stereotypes about that. And the easiest way to recognize that is to realize that around the world, most of those stereotypes vary from culture to culture. But there are some foundational ways that we are wired differently. I'm not going to walk through all of those this morning. But the point of this text is to tell us that those differences are a necessary and good thing. We should celebrate and appreciate the ways that we are not alike. And that should lead us to actually value both genders more. Within marriage, that especially means that we need to value our spouse's differences and learn from them. That is true of differences of, that are because of gender and also those more particular differences that each of us has because of our personality. That we are meant to see each other's differences not as a problem, which is what I'm wired to do, right? To just be like, whenever I encounter those differences. But rather to ask what in that I can see God offering me to complete and complement the way that he's wired me. A husband 
who does not appreciate and learn from his wife's differences is a fool, and likewise for a wife. All of which is to say, so we have these complementary differences. That is the first point that Genesis 2 wants us to understand, that we're meant to look at each other, see how we're different, and rejoice in that fact and learn to be more like God. The second thing Genesis 2 teaches about marriage is that marriage is about intimacy. It is about these two complementary people being united in body and in heart and in life. So we already mentioned that Eve is made from Adam, and that in a sense is very intimate. That's echoed in what Adam says in verse 23. He sees Eve and he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Two things about that verse. First of all, that is the first occurrence of poetry in the Bible. And so dudes, like you don't have to be uncomfortable about like poetry and romantic stuff, right? Like Adam gives you permission to, to treat your wife that way. But more broadly, what Adam is celebrating here is that when he looks at Eve, what he sees is this thing that is in a sense a part of him. That he looks at her and he's like, you know, your bones are somehow my bones. Your flesh is somehow shared with me. And then that leads him to declare in verse 24 that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. They become one flesh in marriage. And then in verse 25, we're told that Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right. So all of those verses together are talking about intimacy. And I don't know that we should have to say this, but we should acknowledge, first of all, that is talking about sexual intimacy. That is a part of what's being pictured there, right? When the two become one flesh and they're naked and unashamed, that in the first place is about sex. Um, and it is important for us to recognize that that sort of um, sexual expression is joined with that image of intimacy. That God intends it to be this way that they are merged into one, and that sex is one of the ways that that is demonstrated and worked out especially important for us to recognize that in a cultural place where um, what we are often told is that sex is an act that's detached from intimacy and relational closeness, right? Part of the problem with the way our culture thinks about sex is that it actually cheapens this thing that is meant to be deep and profound. And it's why sexual sin is so often so painful and destructive. It's why, for example, adultery is viewed as so egregious in Scripture is because you have these people in this one flesh union and it's like you're like taking a chainsaw to that union, right? And hacking into it as you join it with something else. So this is about sexual intimacy, but it's also about something deeper. When we are told that Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed, that is not just a double entendre, but it's speaking to this beautiful picture of just unguarded intimacy with each other in all of life. That they are able to be open and honest and themselves before the other, and they have to feel no shame and no rejection. Maybe the best way to think of that is in that one flesh language. That we are meant to have an intimacy with each other that is so deep that we look at the other person and treat the other person as if they are a part of us, right? As if it's, we're as connected as like, you know, my arm is to my my body. That's the sort of intimacy we're supposed to have and experience in marriage. Of course, if sin in the realm of sexual intimacy causes us pain, sin in that sort of intimacy can cause even more pain. 
I feel the weight of that as I describe that hope of intimacy in marriage because I know some of us are in marriages that feel like they're anything but that. And if that is you, let me just say a couple things to you. One is that that is hard and it is not the way it's supposed to be. And I am sorry that that is your experience. Marriage um, is a commitment for better and for worse, but that worse part can be really painful. Two is that in just a minute, we're going to shift and talk about community. And if you are in a position where maritally you don't experience that kind of intimacy and you experience pain, that community of the church and of the people of God is going to be especially important for you. So hold on for that. But three, if that is you, is don't lose hope and do what you can, but also recognize that sin has broken the world. There is a real chance that God can bring healing and growth and intimacy in even broken marriages, um, but there's no guarantee. And so do keep hoping in the Lord, but also yeah, recognize that that's a hard place to be. That said, for all of us, when we hear that call to that unguarded, open intimacy, I think all of us recognize that to some extent we fall short of that. Even if we're in a marriage where we have some ability to do that, there are ways that we fall away. And so this text would call all of us to seek to be more open with each other and draw closer to each other and love each other as we love ourselves. So that's two things about marriage. And one more. This one will be a little briefer, but also in some ways is the most important one. And that is that marriage is about mission. Marriage in scripture is about mission. All of this, all of this creation of Eve and not good for man to be alone is in the context of God giving Adam a job to do. If you read in verse 15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And we're actually going to look at the first part of Genesis 1, including verse 15 again next week. But the thing to recognize is that first God creates Adam and he says, here's your mission to bear my image is how they talked about it last week to, you know, here it's to work and take care of this garden, and he puts Adam in the garden, and then he says, Adam is not up to this task alone. He needs a helper, a companion, and so he creates Eve so that together they can accomplish this mission. Indeed, part of bearing God's image and being on his mission was always about creating us male and female. In Genesis 1, we're told that we're, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So that's meant to speak to us about um, the reality that it's not just that I individually am on the mission of God. It's that in the first place, like our gender, right, that maleness and femaleness is part of God working out his mission. That this is not um, a task that only one gender is equipped in itself to do. That we need each other to learn from each other and be connected with each other. And more than that, that's meant to communicate the reality that marriage is created to serve God's mission too. That the intimacy and union of marriage is ultimately meant to glorify God and serve the world and advance his mission in it. Or think about it like this. If we ask the question, who is marriage ultimately for in the Bible? Who or in life? Who is marriage ultimately for? Now there's a wrong answer that we all know is the wrong answer, um, although we can still slip into it, which is marriage is ultimately for me, right? <laughs> like I'm in this thing just to serve myself. We all recognize that if you get into that mindset, um, it can be destructive, even though we can all be tempted to go there. But 
it's also wrong in scripture to say that marriage is ultimately about you the other person or ultimately about us together that is less wrong than the first one right <laughs> like there's there's a real sense in which we are called to serve the other person and be joined in this thing but ultimately what marriage is for is god for his glory and to serve him in the world and that means that we need to be thinking in our marriage like in every part of life about how we can serve the lord if you are married and if you are both walking with jesus which i know is not all of us and i know that that's a hard thing again like i said earlier you know my heart goes out to you and in as much as you can make this true if that's not you do it but also know that the lord is with you but if that is you I would encourage you to ask this question this week, which is, what is the ministry that we are called to together in our marriage? What's the ways that we can live out God's mission, in particular, in our marriage? Now, a couple things about that. One is that some of the answer to that question, some pieces of that are just going to be given. Like, if you have kids, one of the main ways that you're going to be called to live out God's mission is by loving your kids and raising them to love the Lord and working together to care for them. Um, or grandkids, that's going to be a part of your mission as well. And also, another part of your mission in your marriage is going to be ways that each of you serves the other and helps the other person use their gifts, right? Part of how I can be on mission is by looking at Elizabeth and saying, what are things that God wants her to do, and then how can I support her and help her to use her gifts in ways that serve God's kingdom and advance his mission? We are two individuals joined together, and so part of it is just saying that— but there are also ways within marriage that we can do things together that we cannot do separately. There are ways, if you are married and together you are seeking to serve the Lord, that you together can bless the world and advance the cause of Jesus in really unique ways. I remember, for example, back in college, there were several godly couples in the town that I lived in, in the church that I attended, who came up with the idea that it would be great just over the summer for them to have college students come and live with their families because in the summer it was off you know you had to find like the three months of housing and people would struggle with that but they'd have these college students just come live with their families for three months and then they would go back to live in the dorms and initially they did that just trying to practically serve you know these college students which was great but what was striking to me i, I had several friends who did this right who went and lived with these families and for some of those friends, I mean, some of them came from broken homes, right, where they had never seen, like, a functional marriage and family. And some of them were, like, baby Christians who had never really grown very much in their walk with Jesus. And these were transformative summers for these kids because suddenly they got to see up close this marriage of these people living together and loving each other. And they got to see up close, you know, what, what parenting looks like in a way that's trying to honor the Lord and just what it means to follow Jesus. And to this day, some of those kids, you know, their lives have been transformed by that. And I use that as an example, intentionally knowing that that one probably will not be what most of us are called to do in our marriages, because there is not a major university right next door. But that sort of thing of saying, we, with, we together as a family are going to try to serve the mission of God can have real power. So I would just encourage you to talk with your spouse about ways you can be doing that. All right. So that's the marriage piece of the sermon. And all of that is important and good. However, like we said at the beginning, this passage is not just about marriage. And so as we finish up, I want to spend some time talking about the other thing that this passage is about. 
So Genesis 2 is not just the first marriage, but it is the first interpersonal relationship. And it's really the foundation for all of human society too, right? Like it's Adam and Eve that are going to like have all the rest of human society. In Genesis 1, part of why God makes them is he blesses them and says, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. And that command begins to come through, right, in this union of Adam and Eve. But that means that what we see in them coming together, in it not good, being good to be alone, what we recognize is that's not just saying it's good to have marriage, it's also saying it's good to have community in a bigger picture way. It's good for us to be connected in this world with other human beings in communities, and particularly for us as Christians in the community of faith. I want to say one thing about marriage and community before we get into the community side, which is that I think it's really important, first of all, for us to acknowledge that because um, marriage and family are not a calling for everyone. They are good and they are normal for many people, but they are not a calling for everyone. And some people are called to live out singleness. Some people are called to work through the hard reality that they're unable to have children. And all of us, on another level, are called at some points in our lives to be single and to not have kids, right? And to serve Jesus in the midst of that. And it is crucial that we realize that that is the case. Because otherwise we can make marriage and family into this idol that really leads us astray. We can make it into this idol. And that can really do two things. One is that if we treat marriage and family as the only, like, be-all, end-all of Christian life— we can make people who aren't in those places feel like second-class Christians. Um, I have several friends who are single and are called to pastoral ministry, and one of the hard things about their journey is the reality that most churches will not even consider hiring them because they're not married with children. Um, and I actually—they think there's, like, something wrong, you know, with them because they're not in that place in their lives. And look— on some level, I emotionally even get that. Like, that kind of thinking is in the water we drink. But, but that is crazy, because rule one of, like, setting your criteria for who you would hire as a pastor should be that, like, Jesus wouldn't be excluded, right? I mean, but Jesus, you know, obviously was single his entire life. Um, so as, you know, I mean, St. Paul was either single or a widower. There's great historical saints like Augustine, modern saints like John Stott. There are lots of people who— um, are single their whole lives and serve Jesus. Or even in smaller, more local ways. I remember talking to a woman once who told me about how before she had kids, she would volunteer for children's ministry and be told that they just didn't feel like she was a good fit for that ministry. And then immediately after having her first baby, she was asked by those same people whether she could help with children's ministry because she seemed really gifted in it. And that's, that's a huge problem, right? That reflects a way that we've started thinking about marriage and family that really hurts people in the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says this about singleness. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. And to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Now, real quick on that verse before you jump to the wrong conclusions. He says it's good to be unmarried or be widowed. He also, in 1 Corinthians 7, says it's good to be married, right? He's not—his point is not that one is good and the other is bad. His point is that both of them can be good and things that we're called to do. 
impact on it. So that's the first issue. If we make marriage and family this idol, is that it can hurt people. See, that's not their calling. But the second issue with that is that it also hurts those of us who are married and have kids because it can make all of us miss out on the beautiful gift of community that we are also called to. Genesis 2 would teach us that community is essential. Community is essential for all of us, regardless of our other stations in life. In the first place, everything we said about marriage is actually also true about other human relationships in a slightly different but still real way. Like, human beings are meant to complement each other, right? Each of us has different gifts and different talents and different abilities, and we're all supposed to be complementary to each other. Um, I mean, Elizabeth and I together don't have, you know, exclusive full reign on, like, every gift and skill that, you know, that people have. We need each other, but we also need everyone else around us. And all of community is supposed to be about intimacy. Again, not in quite the same way as marriage, but... We are called to a place where with friends and with brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be open about things that we're struggling with and, you know, and, and really show our true selves and not be rejected. And we are all meant to be on God's mission together, right? Like we as a community of faith are called on this mission to serve God. Community is how we are designed. Here's how the author of Ecclesiastes puts it. He says, two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, interestingly, that also gets read at weddings a lot. Um, and it's fine in as much, you know, like that cord of three strands you'll hear sometimes at weddings. It's like there's, you know, there's you and your spouse and Jesus. And it's true that it's good to have, you know, you and your spouse and Jesus in relationship with each other. But the issue is that if you read the rest of Ephesians 4, he's actually talking about brotherhood and <laughs> companionship in a non-marital way in those verses, right? What he's saying is that, look, just objectively in life, two people are better able to confront things than one person alone. Three people are even better at the end there. So we are called to community because we need it. And we as Christians are especially called to provide community for each other in the church. Let me just read a couple of passages. Like from Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another on towards love and good deeds, um, not neglecting to meet with one another as the habit of some, but to um, encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. From 1 Corinthians 12, the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are the body of Christ and individually members of it. From Galatians 6, just the simple command, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called in that and many other places in Scripture as we live in relationship with each other, to be a community that supports and cares for one another. Or let me get at that one last way. I often actually find myself thinking and wrestling with this passage from Luke 18, where Jesus says this. He says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Now follow the logic of that verse. 
Jesus starts by talking about people who have to sacrifice family and home and, um, and relationships, right? Spouses, children for the kingdom of God. And in that he's talking about the cost of discipleship, which is real. That following Jesus at times means that um, there are relationships that we otherwise might enjoy that, um, that fall apart because, because we're trying to follow Jesus. And that's a hard truth. And so Jesus joins it with the promise of two things. He says there's two things, right, that make it worth it. One of them is eternal life. That's the one that I think we all in the church naturally runs to, right? He says in the age to come, you're going to receive eternal life. But the other one, he says, is that in this age, you will receive many times as much of those things. Um, in another of the Gospels, it, you know, it says many, like brothers and mothers and sisters and children, you will receive back. Um, and so what he's saying there, what's he talking about? It is the church, right? That's the only thing that he can mean. What he means to be saying is that within the community of the church, even though you might lose relationships as you seek to follow me, you should be receiving back many fold of those relationships in terms of the love and connection with fellow Christians. And what I often wonder about this text is are we, as the church, providing people with that kind of community? Where they could really say in some sense, yes, it is worth it what I have lost because of what I am receiving. Sometimes we do, but sometimes we fail in providing that kind of community. I remember a long time ago, um, I think it was a pastor told me this story. But he told me about this young woman he had known in his church who um, had decided to marry this guy who was very definitely not a Christian. Which is something that scripture would call us as believers not to do. And so this guy met with this young woman and asked her about it. And what she said was this. She said, I am so lonely. Everyone around me is married and has families. And I keep trying to build relationships with these people. I keep trying, you know, to, to make connections. And none of them have any time for me. I just don't know what other choice I have. Well, here's the thing. It is true that that young woman was being called by Jesus to give up her hope, at least, you know, in this specific instance with this guy of marriage. But part of why she was doing that was because the church was failing to be what Jesus called the church to be, right? To be providing her with a set of relationships that could support her through that hard part of Jesus' calling. And I remember that story because what the person said to me he realized in that moment was that he said as much as in some sense she is responsible for her choices, everyone around her is also responsible for her choices too. And it's important for us to recognize that they, in a real sense, share some of the blame in it. So we're called to community, that kind of deep community. Let me just try to name a couple of practical things that that means for us. First, that means that this is something we all need. We all need community, especially those of us who are married. <laughs> now, you could also speak to singles, because obviously there's a real sense in which they really need that community in a unique way. But married people in 21st century America, maybe especially married men, to be honest, are guilty of somehow buying into the idea that because of marriage— we don't need any other connection with people. Um, in uh, ma many um, men in America who were surveyed, I was looking at a survey about this, um, almost the majority said they don't have a single human being that they feel like they can confide in about life. 
And of the other half that said that they did, for 75% of them, it was only their spouse, right? I mean, so, so like, you know, 25% of that, like, 60% of men were, you know, that's all that felt like they had a single meaningful friendship or relationship that they could share, you know, about their lives with outside of that. And that is a huge problem. So if that is you, I would invite you especially to be mindful about seeking after that kind of community. That's part of why we're starting this men's group here in a few weeks, to try to provide one place that people can do that. You don't have to do it that way, but it is important for us, as men especially, for married people more generally, to have that support of the church. And then for all of us, we also need to be doing our part to seek to live in community, even if you are not in that extreme space of isolation. Um, One of the struggles that we can all have is that it's easy for people to complain about being lonely, but it's harder in many ways to pursue friendships and relationships with people. It takes time and involves risk and takes hard work. And so all of us should recognize that we have that calling in our lives. So that's the first thing, that we should all seek community. Secondly, we should all share community with others. We all also have a responsibility to offer community to other people, which is really the other side of the first point. If people seek community, we need to make sure that there's also ways for them to find it. One of the things that can especially happen in the church and that we need to be really mindful of is that each of us naturally develops this kind of set of relationships of people that we're especially close to and know well. And that's normal, right? Just to be clear, when I talk about us living in community, I do not mean that all, like, 140 other people in here this morning are your best friends, right? Um, What's going to naturally happen is that each of us will get to be friends with a few other people and that will form this kind of web of relationships and friendships. One of the great dangers of that web is that there's holes in it that people can slip through. That someone, especially if they're new or if they're kind of quiet, they can, you know, they can be around these people and those people are all connected with each other and nobody is connected to them. And so we need to be especially mindful and keep our eyes open if we do have some community in the church of those people who might be slipping through those holes and that we need to be extending to them welcome and inviting them into our lives and making time to be friends with them. So just rather than just saying, I need to live in community, who do I like to hang out with, right? Which again, is fine in some ways, but we should also alongside that be asking, I want to live in community and I'm called to it. Who needs community that's around me and who can I kind of extend that relationship to? All right, and then one last practical application is that that calling of community, that seeking after it, it's going to require sacrifices. We're going to have to make some sacrifices to experience it. In the first place, just generally, we're going to have to make some sacrifices in terms of how Americans live. Because if we live the way that our culture teaches us to live, we are going to be lonely, right? I mean, I mentioned that one stat, but I mean, another one that I think about a lot is more than half of Americans say they do not have a single meaningful relationship with another human being in their lives. Which is, A, just crazy that, you know, that that's happened to our world. Um, but that is true. And not only that, but for younger generations, it increases, right? Which means that culture for older generations taught them some ways to live in community, but more and more our culture encourages that isolation. And if that's true, that means that if we just live the way that the world tells us to live and we don't do some countercultural things to try to develop relationships, we're going to be lonely. 
And then more specifically, we're going to have to sacrifice things to build those relationships. And maybe the biggest thing that we're going to have to sacrifice is our time. A good friendship, a good relationship takes a lot of time to create. Let me just, there was one study a few years ago that tried to quantify how much time it took with someone before you would feel like you were friends with them, right? And they found that this is many, how many hours of relational time. Now, that does not mean just like staring into each other's eyes and having deep conversations, but it also doesn't just mean like you have desks that are in the same office and every once in a while you ask what you're doing in the weekend, right? Doing things together to build a relationship. Just to be casual friends, it took most people at least 40 hours to feel like they had that thing. To be good friends, 80 to 100 hours. To be close friends, like 200 plus hours of relational time. And one of the things to realize about that is that means that, like, even if you said, I'm going to try to build a friendship with this person, um, it's going to, and you spent an hour a week doing it with that one person, it would take a year before you really felt like you were friends. Um, And two years before you really felt like you were close. And when you realize that, and then you realize that for many of us what happens is it's more like one or two hours a month that we spend building relationships, and it's with all these random different people all over the place. There's a reason that, you know, we don't feel like we develop close friendships. Really, the only way to develop them is to invest time in people, and probably a lot more time than is really convenient in our kind of busy schedules. We're going to be called to make sacrifices of our time, and also sacrifice our time in the sense that another reality of those friendships and relationships is that often the first, like, 20 hours are really not that enjoyable. (laughs) Um, I mean, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, you have that, like, oh, I feel this connection, and I really enjoy getting to know you. But the the other side of it, I remember Rebecca, like, a year ago, she was reading some book, because she's always reading some book and gets these ideas, but she comes to me and she says, Daddy, I want a best friend. And I was like, okay, like, well, so who are some girls that you like and enjoy being with and let's invite them over and have them spend some time with you and, you know, try to build a relationship. And she's, no, I want a best friend today, (laughs) was her response, right? And, And for kids, sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes they just decide they're best friends. But the reality is for most of us that the way you get to be close friends with someone is that first you're not friends and you spend you know, time hanging out and getting to know each other, and eventually, after hours of investment, you're starting to maybe become friends, and then you become friends. But along the way, you've got to put in a lot of hours with this person before you have that relationship. That's really the fruit of that time. All right, so that's community. And then as we close, let me just say one very practical thing that I'm asking all of you to think about. That's part of why we're specifically focused on that this morning. Um, Here at Kish, one of the things that we do... Um, during the school year is that we have small groups that meet twice a month and they are opportunities for people to get together in each other's homes and begin to kind of put this into practice and look i am not in the business of selling you some romantic idealized notion of small groups right like sometimes you'll be like these are the greatest people ever and you'll love it and sometimes you'll be like yeah like i appreciate you you know i'm glad that you're in the body with me but you don't have that deep connection and You know, sometimes you're going to struggle to make it. All of that is true, but I would encourage all of you to prayerfully consider um, if you're not in a small group, joining one. We've got these little sign-up sheets in the bulletin, and you are welcome to fill out information on when you'd be available. All you do is twice a month, you get together in someone's home and share some snacks, talk about Jesus a little bit, talk about each other in life a little bit. And the hope is that in that setting, you can start to build that community 
see those relationships begin to develop. But again, whether it's in that or more generally, our calling in this text is for us to be reflecting how we can grow closer to each other, how we can live lives that are interconnected in love. And that will take work and time and be hard, but it is part of how God created us, and it is absolutely worth it. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would be knitting us all in community, helping us to overcome our fear, overcome our sin and to grow towards each other whether it is in our marriages i do pray for those of us that are married that you would bless our marriages and let them reflect your love for the church or whether it is in our communities more generally that you've placed us in that we would come to know each other better and so love you better pray all of this in the name of jesus amen